Ice from Space, starring Edmund Ryan. This is it, gentlemen, the Arrow B-76. And thus begins a television program from the early 1950s. The program is Tales of Tomorrow. Over the past few decades, I've asked probably two to three dozen people, uh, roughly my age, if they remember the show. And not one person does. Now, in the early 1950s, only a little over 20% of the population or the families' homes owned a television set. That explains part of it. Part of it is explained by lack of memory, but I know on Friday nights, my family, my father, mother, and I, watched every show every week. I always loved the opening music to the program. It's uh, from Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet Ballet. And what you see on the screen is this huge glove, gloved hand with spikes, I think, and just a little bit of the forearm reaching forward to this gigantic switch. And he throws the switch and it cuts to these uh, two Jacob, Jacob's ladders, two poles with lightning from one ball to the other going up, up the ladder. And it cuts to the opening credits and the narrator introducing the episode. Ice from Space, starring Edmund Ryan. This is it, gentlemen, the Arrow B-76. Do I have a soft spot in my heart for this show? Absolutely. Tales of Tomorrow was pretty much standard fare in our home. Uh, the importance of the show in our lives contrasts with the fact that today it's mostly forgotten. We went to uh, two kinds of movies when I was a kid at the little Wall Lake Theater uh, near our home. Uh, westerns and science fiction shows. Anything that was on television that, you know, regarding either one of those two topics, we watched. And I can say that Tales of Tomorrow was actually important in our lives. We used to uh, sit out in the backyard at night. I remember this in our home. It was kind of out in the country. We put blankets out there and lie on the blankets, maybe 10, 11 o'clock at night, and look up at the sky to see strange things. And we did see a couple strange things. Uh, this ball of light, I remember a little bit. <laughs> it been a long time. Uh, we saw it float across the, uh, the west of the sky, just above the horizon and disappear. And a couple other things. This was a time shortly after the Roswell, New Mexico story. Uh, that happened in 1947. And flying saucers were like in the news and everywhere. I mean, that was like, it was big news. And a lot of movies, of course, were made uh, about this topic. And so Tales of Tomorrow was um, really a treat for us because it, it went along with uh, our view, our attitude, or our need for, for something to explain what was going on. Now, science fiction shows weren't all about flying saucers. And we lay in the backyard looking for them along with a lot of other people, millions probably. Uh, but the show kind of satisfied our, 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 our hankering for something different and strange and wonderful. The importance of the show in our lives uh, contrasts with the fact that today it's mostly forgotten, and as I pointed out earlier, I haven't talked to anyone who even, even remembers it. Uh, there's only scattered references to it on the Internet, some scattered trivia about the program and some episode guides 
and uh, laurels for its cast, who included a lot of big people who became big timers later. Rod Steiger, James Dean, uh, Paul Newman, of course Boris Karloff, and some other people. And it's odd uh, that shows like The Honeymooners or I Love Lucy uh, in reruns helped to create the illusion that we remember the original airings, and of course we don't. And in fact, in the case of Tales, nobody does except for me so far. And it makes me wonder why Tales of Tomorrow isn't in reruns. I see an episode once in a while, or I used to, on uh, the Sci-Fi Channel when it was still watchable before the deluge of commercials. Maybe it's uh, too esoteric. Maybe it's not funny enough for an age of truly amusing ourselves to death. Whatever the reason, and we think of the early 1950s as uh, you know, the golden age of television, which it was, because, I mean, there were, it was live drama, not, you know, taped or, you know, filmed stuff, but actually live drama on uh, shows like, um, well, let's see, there was Climax, Playhouse 90, oh yeah, and Westinghouse Studio One that started in the late 40s. Of course, the Hallmark Hall of Fame, which presented plays in full, all kinds of things. And Tales of Tomorrow was of the same quality. But in the early 50s, very early 50s, I remember we got a television set in 1950. <laughs> and I think the cost of it was, I believe, it was either 200 or, or $350. I mean, an outrageous amount. That's like $2,000 today. And the stuff on television that, that was plugged in to fill the airwaves were things like, you know, live wrestling, uh, divorce court, traffic court, things like you said, <laughs> things that uh, actually are shown today as entertainment because our, I don't know, our standards have sunk pretty low. And I wonder why the show only lasted two seasons, and I've, I have some theories about it and about the stories then. They were counter to the production values at such a low par with most early television. Maybe they were too esoteric. The creator's vision in producing television's first science fiction programming uh, is, is, I mean, it's really a hallmark in broadcast history. And it's not, that's not the reason that I, I like the show or watch it whenever I can if there's a rerun or get what I can on DVD. It was just an amazing program, really well done and with good acting. Today, uh, production is different. From a perspective of nearly 60 years, yes, that's how old I am, with the sophistication and jaundice of having set through, I guess, tens of thousands of commercials and spinoffs and seasons, which now only last a few weeks, it had about it a feeling of guileless sincerity. Back in the early 50s, when anything was fair game, why not take a chance on a, on a science fiction show? Some more programs from back then. I have these written down so I didn't forget them. Uh, there was like a divorce court I mentioned, Beat the Clock, where people tried to like uh, scoop whipped cream out of one container and fill up this gallon jug with it before the clock ran out and, and win a prize. Queen for a day where women would come on <laughs> and bear their souls and tell the, the most tragic story they could absolutely right out of their lives and uh then they'd have an audience audience reaction and the woman with the saddest story would be queen for a day the queen of remorse 
And uh, when maybe a washing machine or a refrigerator or maybe a television, The honey, Honeymooners, of course, which was a good show. And then there was Amos and Andy from, from radio and the Lone Ranger from radio and I think FBI, the FBI from radio. Well, there's this kind of thing. And you get a sense in a way, even though they're taking a chance, it's sort of like a, a child sitting in front of, the, in front of the, the wheel of an automobile. He just drives down the road, unknown roads, and enjoyed the ride. And that's, that's kind of what they did with this show, the producers. And uh, that's what we did when we watched it. It was something original and good. And as I said, satisfied our curiosity or imaginations about wondering, you know, what if or what's out there. A few years ago, I wrote an essay on uh, Tales of Tomorrow. It was going to be part of a book, but the sources were, uh, well, mostly no longer with us. So I kind of stopped it. But I got as far as the essay, which I'm going to read a part of, just a short part, so don't run for the cat videos on YouTube. If it sounds like I'm reading this, well, I am. As Carly Simon ingeniously wrote in a song, these are the good old days. But we didn't know it then any more than we do today. We watched television as part of the new American world, a present, an offshoot of our national supremacy. We would watch anything and we would enjoy it. Live from a studio somewhere, and the location of that somewhere didn't matter. As my parents and I sat in our little red house in Walled Lake, Michigan, we could watch Faye Emerson and Milton Berle in New York. And with the always present help from our imaginations, we became part of their world, the world of big city entertainment. A studio set up in the middle of a Nebraska cornfield would have fascinated us. If mass marketing began with the radio in the 1920s, media addiction sealed our fate in the early 1950s. The time was innocent and it was fun and we enjoyed the traffic courts, despite what I said earlier, and watching Mort Neff in Michigan outdoors hold a live raccoon and watching it urinate on his jacket. Nothing was banal. Everything was fair game. Abusive material ran rampant and we didn't care. Into this early and truly wonderful chaos came our first taste of what has now to be considered intellectual television, the first adult science fiction show, Tales of Tomorrow. It made us think and wonder. Reflecting on the series, which came close on the heels of the flying saucer phenomenon, one wonders whether the two were connected. Of course they were. In those few years, 1951 through 1953, not a person in the country wasn't at least curious about life in other worlds. Saucerdom floated through conversations freely and sometimes seriously. Our family spent many of those summer nights on blankets in the backyard watching the night sky, hoping for the strange and exciting. We saw a few inexplicable sights, but nothing in line with the media concept of alien spacecraft. Fueling our taste for the unknown were movies as well as newspapers and magazines. Robert Wise made my all-time favorite science fiction film in 1951, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Aliens were indeed everywhere. We just never saw them. I'm tacking on a, a short addenda here at the end. I had my friend Sandy listen to this show uh, to get some feedback, and she suggested that I say something about the music. Well, okay. When I was about nine or ten years old when I listened to this the original broadcasts I 
heard the music, of course, in the background. And about 10 years later, when I started listening to classical music, I realized, oh yeah, that's the stuff they used in Tales of Tomorrow. A whole bunch of it, from Prokofiev, uh, the introduction you heard, uh, to Bartok and some more Prokofiev stuff, and Howard Hansen, his first symphony. And I, I realized, uh, wow, they used all that stuff in the, in the original show. And the reason they did that, of course, was because they had a very lo uh, low budget. They couldn't afford to have somebody come in and write original music for it, so they used classical music. And actually, that kind of, I guess, stimulated my interest in classical music to this day. In some future shows, or at least one future show, I'm going to do on music. I think it'll be on music and television and movies from, of course, my perspective, which, of course, is utterly biased. So you don't have to agree with anything I say, but I think that would be a good, that would be a fun show to do and maybe informative for you to listen to as well. Another idea, along with the music thing, is uh, to do one just on jazz. I was raised on jazz. My dad was a jazz trumpet cornet player, and that was like all that was in the house. When I got into classical music, <laughs> it was uh, pretty confrontational. Dad and I had many arguments about it. And I, I'll do a show about that too, but I think I'll do a show about jazz and maybe very light surface stuff, tracing some major players from the 20s through the 30s, 40s, and into bebop and uh, through uh, John Coltrane in the 50s. That would be interesting too and also fun to do. I'll see you then, I hope. <laughs>